This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome to Such Sights to Show, a limited series Hellraiser podcast. I am Joe Lipset, and I am joined by Brian Christopher. Hi, Brian. Howdy. How's it going, Joe? I am so excited. So this was basically your passion project, and you pitched me on this because we have a couple of Hellraiser projects in production, and we thought there is no better time to revisit the origins of all of this. So we're not talking about movies. We're talking about books, and I'm psyched because I haven't read Hellbound Heart in forever. What about you? Yeah, it's um, it had been a while. It's also the one of those books, or I guess technically it's a novella, that over the course of my life I've read probably three or four times, which mm-hmm. might not sound like much, but you have to understand for me that's two or three more times than I ever read any book. You know, okay. I don't reread stuff. So the fact that, you know, I, I enjoy going back to that well is just, you know, as people know, <laughs> anybody who knows me knows I am a fan. Mm-hmm. It also helps that it's one of those books and we'll get more you know deeply into it. But it's it's very easy to read. It's only about 150 pages and it's to the point and mm-hmm. it's, you know, it, it, it gets in, gets out, you know, much like the movie. And it's it's very easy to be able to, you know, just kind of pop in, give it a revisit and and be able to walk away from it without having it be kind of too much of a, of an effort. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I love a novella, especially when they're as well written as this particular one is, Mm -hmm. but let's put the the novella back on the shelf for a moment, Mm -hmm. because you mentioned that you are a diehard fan. And I feel like if people have listened to our Corpse Club episodes, if people have listened to your guest spot on Horror Queers on the third film, they have a sense of this. But just in case people are coming to this brand new and fresh, what is your history with Hellraiser, Clyde Barker, all of that jazz? So I will come out front and say, because that's an interesting point, I am not as much of a Clive Barker fan kind of in total as mm-hmm. I am a Hellraiser fan. Okay. You know, I've read some of his other stuff and I've enjoyed some of his other stuff and I've seen some of his other movies. I've seen Nightbreed, things like that. Right. But for me, it's all about Hellraiser. Okay. And it goes back to as far back as I can remember. Like, (laughs) it's probably by five years old, at the very least, I knew what Hellraiser was. Oh. And I'm pretty sure I had seen it at that point because I have kind of very distinct memories of like mm-hmm. the opening scene of that movie that goes back to way before I should have seen it. Always. Um, so yeah, I've, I've kind of loved this movie my entire life and it's only evolved and gotten, gotten its hooks sunk deeper into my heart as I've gotten older. <laughs> and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about more about how that's evolved and, and you know, why I love it so much, but you know, you have a similar kind of trajectory, you know, that you or not necessarily trajectory, but I know, you know, if, if I had to find someone who loved this movie as much as I do, 
that's why we're the ones talking about it because i know that you are also very very in love with this movie oh my god yes yeah uh folks know that hellraiser is part of my horror origin story and really in a sense clyde barker is instrumental to that as well because it was hellraiser and Candyman that really kind of got me maybe not into horror but it really solidified horror as the predominant genre that was for me like these were the films that as you said sunk the (laughs) (laughs) sunk not the claws the hooks into me and there's just something so rich and evocative particularly about the prose and the visuals of everything to do with not even the Cenobites, but just this world, right? Like the iconography of the Lament configuration, just the visual stylings of the Cenobites, the idea that people stumble into this world and discover something otherworldly, but it's not fantasy. It's not going to an alien homeworld or anything like that. There's something otherworldly that I just think is really captivating. Mm-hmm. So yeah, It has captured me since the first time I saw the film, ended up seeking out all of the sequels over time. (laughs) It is, as we discussed on your series for Corpse Club, very much a case of uh, diminishing returns, particularly five and on. Highest of highs and lowest of lows for that franchise. Yeah. Yeah, like to enjoy the film franchise as a whole over the 10 films is a bit of a sadomasochistic experience like also oh. very um i would say a positive spin to say to enjoy the series over mm-hmm. over all 10 movies i would say you could you know consume the the series over 10 films but i i don't think i've ever met anybody who has enjoyed the series over all 10 films no but there's something to be said for always finding at least one or two interesting things right like mm-hmm. There are absolutely peak and valleys, but I think the reason that you and I in particular dislike a lot of the back half is that there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what makes this property so interesting and so rich. And Mm -hmm. I see the lost potential in those stories where it feels like a paint-by-numbers horror film where we're just trying to keep that IP alive. And that is really frustrating as a fan of both this original property like Clyde Barker's Hellbound Heart and everything he's trying to do and compressing into those 150 pages. <laughs> and then those first couple of films, like three and four are pushing the franchise into interesting directions. And then from there on, it just feels like, yeah, we gave up. We think people <laughs> are interested in film noir and also the occasional Cenobite. And I think there's something interesting to, to consider about the moving away from kind of the original themes i think we'll see as we as we talk about the hellbound heart that even happens in the step from the novella to the first movie mm-hmm. just because of the reality of what kind of movie you were able to make in 1987 right for a 1 million dollar budget yes yeah um and in terms of like what was going to get by censors you know mm-hmm. what what people were going to be accepting of yeah. So, you know, and I think that brings us to an interesting spot where we're at now where we've got these two new adaptations coming mm-hmm. and there's maybe the potential to, you know, bring back some of those themes and elements that were present in Hellbound Heart that you don't see even in the first Hellraiser movie for as yeah. much as I love it. 
Yeah. I think one adaptation is a lot more likely to revisit those themes than the other. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So folks, if you don't know, we're approaching this as a bit of a limited series. So we're we're focusing not on the films as much. We're going to be looking at the way that Pinhead, the Cenobites, and some of the other characters in this world have moved throughout time in written form. So we're going to be looking at the Hellbound Heart first. We're going to look at some of the variations of these characters in comics, and then we're going to wrap up with the Scarlet Gospels, which is the most recent iteration which merges Clive Barker's Harry Demura character with the High Priest, a.k.a. Pinhead. And we're doing this in part because we have David Bruckner's remake, which is going to be going direct to streaming. And then we also have a television series by David Gordon Green, which is also going to TV, but that's going to be a full-on series. And I don't know, like, I'm excited to see how these different versions are going to work, because originally I would be more excited for a TV show because you could really explore the lore of this entire world. The problem is, is that I hate David Gordon Green, and I think that he's a (laughs) hack and he's absolutely the wrong person to do this property any form of justice. So I've got all of my hopes pinned on David Bruckner because he is a true auteur and his other productions have proved that he has the visual styling to at least bring this world to life. So in the tale of two Davids, you are team Bruckner all the way. A hundred percent (laughs) Bruckner. Gordon Green can eat it. Uh, So yeah, I will say, I I don't think my feelings against David Gordon Green are quite as strong as yours. Not as strong? No? Um, Okay. But I will say that I enjoyed the 2018 Halloween. Mm -hmm. And I will also say I enjoyed Halloween Kills, but I do not think for the reason that David Gordon Green had meant. Okay. Right. I think one day we are going to look back at Halloween Kills as a camp masterpiece. Oh. hmm. Because it is a... It is a movie that is a miracle in terms of making every wrong decision about the themes and tone of a Mm -hmm. Halloween movie. It was just, how could you possibly make that many capital Mm -hmm. C choices in one movie? Yeah. It was a sight to behold. And by the end of that, I was like, I am actually enjoying how ridiculously wrong wrong this movie is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. I am willing to be surprised by David Gordon Green's version. Like, if he somehow comes up with a fascinating take on this material, like, I will watch it. Mm -hmm. I will be first in line to check it out because anything to do with this property is an automatic sold from my perspective. I just think, given his previous track record, he is not the person I would have put in charge of steering this ship. Now, with that said... I think part of the reason that I'm so attracted to this is that long-form narrative is going to be an interesting fit. Like, we don't really have a sense yet of what that vision is going to look like in terms of the types of stories that they're going to tell. Are Mm. we going to get stuff with the engineer, as was teased in Hellraiser Judgment, and actually makes an appearance in the Hellbound Heart, which I had completely forgotten about? Or is it going to be hellraiser stretched out over six episodes eight episodes like is it just going to be a straightforward retelling which is more of what i'm imagining we'll get in bruckner's version but Mm -hmm. i'm hoping as you teased it might be a little bit more in line with some of the eroticism the discomfort that we see in the book that maybe 
maybe just wasn't possible when Barker was making this. Because as you said, like we live in very different times in terms of censorship. And it's also very different when we're talking about going straight to streaming. The censors mm -hmm. are not the same for TV. Yeah, if this series is them stretching out the Hellbound Heart over six episodes, yeah. I'm going to be pretty bummed about that. I'm Ooh, not going to lie. Lost opportunity. Yeah. With all of these kind of rich, uh, you know, a lot of what we're going to be talking about over the next, I think, two episodes, you know, after this one is mm -hmm. going to be the stuff that I think is going to be thematic and narrative gold for yeah. a, a, a series. Yeah. Things that we haven't seen captured mm -hmm. visually before. Yeah, so if we're just talking about redoing this 150-page novella but stretching it, then, oh boy, I'm going to be mm -hmm. pissed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but in terms of, of Bruckner's remake, anybody who has listened to the, the, the Corpse Club retrospective we did, uh, I've made it pretty clear that by the time like Revelations and Judgment rolled around, I was unwilling to let the Hellraiser series hurt me anymore. So... <laughs> I, I developed a, a callus towards mm -hmm. any Hellraiser news to where it's just like, eh, whatever, I don't care. I don't even care. Yeah, and you had to do it to protect yourself because you yes. had been burned for how many years and how many films at that point? Yeah, I mean, five on. Mm -hmm. You know, you and I are both unabashed fans for as messy and as flawed as they are, both three and four are fun. Yes. You know, and they are interesting and mm -hmm. there are swings that they take that don't work, but there's still something there to enjoy. Mm -hmm. And they work on a rewatch. Like yes. I will happily mm -hmm. turn on Hell on Earth and Bloodline. If you say you want to watch them, I'm down. I'm there. If mm -hmm. you tell me that you want to watch, honestly, anything other than Judgment, I'm probably going to peace out. And even Judgment, it's the curiosity factor is mm -hmm. just there for me like you can see part of what they're trying to do but it is so cheap and so not good like you almost like you like judgment for the same reason i like halloween kills which is none of the reasons that the people who made it probably want you to like it um yes and no mostly yes of what you just said but <laughs> also because it feels like the closest to what you were talking about with the comics and scarlet gospel sure like we are trying to do something with the lore but we're also still making we're repeating the sins of the father by doing it as a film noir and just the budget the acting is not there and also i don't come to hellraiser to see women with their tits out like, that is not what's driving my interest. And not just because I'm queer, because I think there's... That's not what this movie is. That's it's not a what weird conflation. Are. Like, yeah. everything about Hellraiser is super erotic and sexy, but that's not casual nudity in my mm -hmm. eyes. Like, there's a very firm distance between the yes. two. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where, you know, for me, things took a turn when I heard about David Bruckner doing a remake mm -hmm. i was basically preparing myself for okay this is going to be a very sanitized version of mm. a hellraiser movie okay and by sanitized i mean it's going to be gory there's going to be like you know good special effects but they're gonna focus again on these on cenobites as being right like just monsters and mm -hmm. and uh and and really take out the the erotic end I think mm -hmm. very importantly, the queer elements out of yes. the, the, the subversive stuff, right? Yes. Yeah. And then they announced who was going to play Pinhead 
And oh my god! That all I just got chills. Me. I got chills. <laughs> and they are multiplying. <sighs> Jamie Clayton. Yes. I was unaware of who Jamie Clayton was when they cast oh. made the announcement. Yeah. Okay. Which was very interesting because so the the news the news cycle was an evolution for me during the day. Oh wow! Because at first I was already excited, like yeah, you got a woman playing Pinhead, and as mm-hmm. we're going to talk about later. The pinhead equivalent in Hellbound Heart is coded as a woman. Yes. And so I was already like, okay, even as it's coming out, you can already hear the the Hellraiser dude bros who don't get what's interesting about the Hellraiser movies shitting mm-hmm. their pants. So I'm oh, sure. already I'm already on board. Oh yeah. Anything to make those people uncomfortable or angry is mm-hmm. like, oh, we are making steps in the right direction. Yes, yes. And then I find out that Jamie Clayton is a trans woman mm-hmm. who has been in the L word, uh, Sense Eight. And mm-hmm. I, I'm told that's one of those series I, I haven't seen, but I'm told I should see it because it's it's very good. Yeah. You know, a casting announcement, including Jamie Clayton, very well might not equate to this being what we want out of the Hellraiser remake and, and mm-hmm. going back to the basics of the Hellbound Heart. But just that simple casting announcement is such yeah. a huge step in the right direction for me uh-huh. that it's it's got me excited for it. Oh, the discussions that you and I were having on the DMs the day mm-hmm. that that casting announcement came through, it was mm-hmm. like a spark had come back into our lives. Like we had been burned so many times and so badly you know we are these staunch defenders who if somebody is making a hellraiser reference we are tagging each other in it but it is like that love that got away yeah yeah this will never come back exactly yeah we'll we'll always have hellraiser (laughs) 1987 yeah but we have become hollowed shells of our former (laughs) selves because of what has happened and then this casting announcement of jamie clayton so fucking inspired honestly so unexpected i Mm -hmm. really didn't think we were going to be exploring more interesting options because here's the thing jamie clayton she's a great actress like first and foremost she's going to be bringing something to this role But also, this feels like it's not a woke thing. This isn't a progressive thing. This is a, we want to do this story right. Mm -hmm. And this is that step that's not just the step in the right direction. It is inspired. It is energetic. It is bringing life back into these ideas. It just feels so right. Yeah. No, it feels, yeah, right, I think is the exact way to put it. Like, it feels right. You know, it, I'm sure there are many people complaining that it's like woke stunt casting, oh, sure. but it's clearly people who don't understand mm-hmm. what's interesting about this content. Right. You know, and I, I hate to sound gatekeepy to say like, well, if you don't get it, then you're an asshole. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a certain extent where if you don't get it, you're kind of an asshole. Like, I don't know any other way to put it. And and that's not to say if you take other things out of the Hellraiser series, mm-hmm. that's not to say that you're doing it incorrectly. You know, you don't have to take the queer reading out of Hellraiser because, to be perfectly honest, it's, you know, I think it's something that, you know, you and I take out of it because we know who wrote it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not necessarily anything that is super forward in the text. Right. You know, the, the characters in it, they are, you know, hetero characters for the mm-hmm. most part. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's it's you know not anything where it's you know necessarily like I don't want to say in your face, but it's it doesn't have to be your reading of it. Mm-hmm. But if you're someone who is having such a visceral kind of like negative reaction 
to this casting and and <laughs> can't grasp how a gay man you know made this content so that there are ways to read it as mm-hmm. you know queer uh context then yeah you're you're missing something there well, I think people just have this tendency to close themselves off from things that either make them uncomfortable or they can't personally relate to. And this isn't specific to this text, but you're right. There absolutely is that reading, that interpretation. And for me, the text has always been richer as a result. So when people say, oh, well, I'm just really excited about Pinhead or I love the Cenobates. And I'm like, yeah, I don't like the idea of being gatekeepery, but to me, that's also a bit of a misunderstanding of what the text is trying to do. Like, the reason I love Hellraiser is not because of the gorgeous monsters, mm-hmm. although, yes, that is a key part of it. It adds to it, yes. <laughs> for me, it has always been the lurid melodrama. Like, Hellraiser for me is the text that it changed my thought perception about what horror can and maybe should be, which is that it is liminal in terms of genre. Like horror transgresses into all the other genres and then it brings horror into it. So for me, this is a family drama. Mm -hmm. A fucked up family drama. (laughs) Yeah. And you see it even in the book where it's less of a family. Like this Mm. is, this is not a father, daughter, evil stepmother relationship, but the grounding principles are still there. Like it's about a woman who wants to fuck this man, except that she's really threatened and intimidated by this super empowering kind of authorial figure. Mm. And that woman is actually completely hiding the fact that she is obsessed with her husband's brother and like i don't know like there's nothing horrific about that that is very relatable content it's very grounded material and yet the way that barker writes it the way that he evokes sentiment and then the way the horrific parts creep into the story is what makes it so memorable for me yeah yeah you you kind of really hit the, the nail on the head i really as i go into saying these stupid cliches that happen to like line up like hooks and nails and all that stuff i swear mm-hmm. to god i'm not trying it <laughs> and that's been the big part of my evolution with both the the novella and the the movie it's realizing that i think collectively the discourse has had this discussion about realizing like the Cenobites are not the villains of the story Mm-mm. frank and julia cotton are the villains of this story yes um, but at the same time they're also you know for me not not as much frank but julia is the most compelling villain of yes this movie or of, of oh. the movie and yeah probably the hellbound heart uh the the novella as well yeah okay so let let's get into this shall we so mm-hmm. The Hellbound Heart is a novella. It was originally published as part of an anthology, and then it came out in 1986. And then when the film got made, it was re-released as a standalone book. So this happened all in sort of close proximity to one another. And then there's technically two direct sequels. So we have The Scarlet Gospels by Clyde Barker in 2015, and we're going to be dedicating a whole entry just to that book. And then there's technically also Hellraiser the Toll by Mark Allen Miller from 2018, which is based off of a Clive Barker story. And folks, we'll we'll be candid. We're not really sure if we're going to touch on that. (laughs) We haven't read it. We're not familiar with it. But the fact that it's only based on a story by Clive Barker and not actually written by him, we're a little more trepidatious. And then, of course, 
there's all the comics, which is what we're going to talk about in between this episode and the Scarlet Gospels. Mm-hmm. I think what's the most interesting in terms of the timeline for Hellbound Heart and Hellraiser is that there is less than a year between when Hellbound Heart was published mm-hmm. and when Hellraiser was released in the Oh, UK. it's shocking. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it has to make you wonder, because I know during that time, Barker was very unhappy with the way that, you know, there was a couple adaptations of his work that he just really wasn't happy with. Mm-hmm. So I wonder to what degree, like, was he even writing Hellbound Heart, just knowing the whole time, like, this is what I want to make into my first movie? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all, because that is one of the things that people who are new to the novella often say, like, oh, shit, this is really close to what Hellraiser is. And not just because it's the same author director, but like, it very much feels like I wrote this, and then I just expanded it into a film. Like, the two are one and the same. Yeah, yeah. No, there's definitely a progression there. Uh, And I don't know if I've ever seen something like this before, where it's, you know, someone who is primarily known as an author (laughs) writes this novella, and then his debut movie is to adapt that within a year of writing it like it's Mm -hmm. such a it's such an interesting timeline for me yeah and it's also one of those things where we've seen other instances of writers who have said like i don't like the way you're adapting it i'm gonna make it myself Mm -hmm. uh and then you get things like maximum overdrive so it's like you know for as much as i love maximum overdrive for what it is you know that's not always (laughs) That kind of debut is not always going to be a home run. No, no. And and that is truly shocking about the film is how much of a perfect synthesis it is of everything that makes this novella work so well, right? Like everything that Barker sets out to do in the novella is represented on screen. And some people would actually say it's refined and honed and perfected. Like I know a lot of people who have read and watched and they prefer the film. Which is a weird thing for me because it's, they're so similar. Yeah. I don't know if it's, maybe it's the film is such a visual experience that trying to Mm. like, if, if your first experience with this world is to see Hellraiser and then kind of go back and read the Hellbound Heart. Yes. That might be, there might be like some cognitive dissonance between those two. Mm-hmm. You know, especially because he's very good with descriptions in the Hellbound Heart, but it's also, that's not what it's about. When it comes to the Cenobites, they are kind of a background threat and yes. they are not the, the import of the, the novella. They're kind of the, the catalyst as opposed to, you know, like, like we've been saying the the true villains of the movie. Mm-hmm. And so when you, when you kind of come from loving Hellraiser where clearly they've stolen the show and then you have to kind of see them within the context of like their background players and you don't have those kind of like flashy pop scenes where they, they steal the show. I, I, I can see why, even though these things are so similar why someone who likes the movie you know maybe they don't quite connect with the source material as much yeah i think if the cenobites are deriving your attraction to particularly the film Mm -hmm. the book may feel a little bit i don't think underwhelming is the right word but it it might force you to recognize oh the cenobites are not actually the true stars of this show Mm -hmm. and i do always think that that's fascinating because for me the the driving 
interest in the movie for me as you said earlier it's always julia like julia's <laughs> obsession with frank the lengths to which a woman will go and her struggle to quantify what has changed in her own marriage you know the fact that she has ascended into this role of evil stepmother i love all of that like julia is such a fucking rich and fascinating character to me that when i watch hellraiser i honestly could give two shits about the cenobites <laughs> yeah yeah it's it, it's not even that i don't give two shits about them but i actually credit i think it was the hellbound heart that pivoted me towards realizing that the cenobite and i and i guess for me the hellbound heart is kind of a potential pivot point for a lot of people where Mm -hmm. if you do read that it's maybe what is going to make the movie richer and better for it or if you don't make that connection and it's still something where no i'm just in this for the cenobites Mm -hmm. then it'll probably just further entrench you in that idea of like you know i just i like hellraiser because of you know, these, these yes. gnarly kind of demon sadomasochists. Yeah, the Hellbound Heart is a good litmus test for helping you to identify what is really your driving influence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think all of those things can be true, too. Like, it doesn't oh, have sure. to be one or the other. Like, I no. love both the Cenobites and I love the story among the Cottons. But it's, <laughs> you know, recognizing that the Cottons are what are really driving the narrative. Yes, Yes, and okay, so you, you've you now forced me to walk back. It's not that I don't give two shits about the Cenobites. It's just that <laughs> I, I don't put the movies on to say like, oh, I'm so excited to see Pinhead. Like when Pinhead shows up and Doug Bradley speaks, you're just like, oh, Jesus Christ, I think I just had a religious experience. Yeah, but... you're not just waiting for the Cenobites to come back on screen. No, yeah. yeah. And for me, that's always what all the rest of the film, not all the rest of the films, that's what many of the successive sequels misunderstands, is that the Cenobites should not be driving the show. It mm-hmm. is not about them. They come in when they are needed. And I feel like the willingness to hold back and use them as utility players is what makes this novella and that first film, and to a lesser extent, the second film as well, so strong, right? Like, Barker knows how to use these creatures because when you use them judiciously, you get maximum impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if you don't have anything else going for you except for them, then you're going to be in trouble. Yeah. 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 Because they're not they're not characters in that mm-hmm. way, right? Like, we don't want to know their backstories. We don't always need to know their motivations and so on. Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting kind of talking about, because I, I never really realized that with the Hellbound Heart until we kind of accidentally stumbled on that idea that, yeah, it, this was kind of my reading that novella was kind of the pivot point for me in terms of realizing why it is that I like this story so much. Mm-hmm. That is fascinating. Because to me, so this is, I think, the third time that I've read it. So I had previously read it in my high school career and then i think i reread it a couple years ago and i've always enjoyed it but for me it's like a good sample taster if you're not sure if barker is for you because it's Mm -hmm. brief enough but it's also very evocative of his other work like if you like his prose if you like the way that he describes things if you like the way that he sets up his horrific set pieces this is a good gateway into that world but for me i'm always like oh i'm not going to reread this i'm going to jump straight to a magica or something (laughs) where it's like i want to see the world building over a thousand pages this is like, it's a little amuse-bouche. 
yeah, it's it's more I think accessible than probably his oh god his yes. other stuff if you're not already familiar with it. So yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's a really good a good point. It's a really good entry point for the vast literary world that, mm-hmm. that Bunker has at this point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So maybe let's let's spend a little bit of time talking about some of the key differences because really folks if you're just listening to this you have not read the hellbound heart the number one thing that you can probably take away from this is that if you've seen hellraiser you really already have a fundamental understanding of the novella because they are Mm -hmm. so similar but there Mm -hmm. are a couple of very key distinctions that i think we should talk about yeah and i think this kind of gets into kind of where this was for me the the seed of doing this in the first place, because this is, I think where we're going to see some places where maybe the remake can go and Mm -hmm, and can justify mm -hmm. the existence of a remake rather than just rehashing everything. Uh, There are some narrative points and some themes that can be explored because they haven't been explored cinematically yet. Yes. And so one like, and this is in terms of differences, this is a small one, but one that I do hope they take to heart uh, in the, the new one is that Frank obtains Lemarchand's box in Germany, not in a kind of unidentified, stereotypical, quote unquote, exotic locale, a.k.a., Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) non-white, you know, and, and making that kind of, you know, that link of equating those areas with you know, that's where you find the evil and the bad stuff. You know, mm-hmm. at this point, I I would hope we're past that to some degree. So, you know, hopefully when we land on the remake that they'll be finding it somewhere that's that's not just kind of generally coded as like, you know, where brown people are, because that yeah. was one of the one of the things that don't quite uh, don't quite hold up 30 uh, something years later. Yeah, having rewatched Gremlins, this is definitely something that we were doing in the mm-hmm. 80s. It taps into this idea that white people and specifically North Americans are implicitly afraid of otherness. And I think in terms of messaging, that could be a satirical angle or even like a critical angle in which to explore this. But the problem is, is that in the film in particular, we don't spend any time on that. So it's very much yeah. like, ooh, I went to a scary other country mm-hmm. and I brought back this thing that kills. Mm-hmm. And that's shit. Like, that's a really terrible message. I do think that there could be some potential to explore it. Like, you could make the argument, oh, he goes to Germany, which also has a historical precedent for having things that kill you. <laughs> also, maybe not yeah. a great thing to explore. But, I mean, in the novella there's very much a calculated mythology to this where it was a French box maker, a puzzle maker who had an interest in birds and beautiful imagery. Like when Frank opens the box, it's far more complicated than what we see in the finished version of the film. It also has a musical component that mirrors the way that the Cenobites, I guess, come in and out of our world. And I thought that that was really interesting, but the, the French angle mixed with the, and I found the box in Germany has that, okay, well, I still had to travel to a, a different place. Like mm-hmm. I had to seek this out. It's not something where you're just coming across it in a pawn shop, but I fully agree with you that if you're going to go the other route, you need to spend some time or do that more carefully. Yeah, it's the the fact that they're able to do this, you know, with the French and the German elements in the the novella is just kind of reminders that like 
there are dark corners of Europe. You know, mm-hmm. there are places where the buses don't run in Europe. You don't need sure. to have that be like a capital E exotic locale yeah. in terms of, of finding it there. So, you know, hopefully they'll they'll find a smarter way of, of navigating that. It doesn't need to be coded as anywhere. Like it could no. just be, you know, a dark corner of somewhere. Mm-hmm. They could sidestep it entirely, you know, and you're not going to be missing anything from it. Absolutely, because at the end of the day, the box is a bit of a MacGuffin, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's just the vehicle by which we open up the story so that we can introduce the monsters who will drive the action. And I think one of the other things that's interesting is that the book is also very explicitly set in London, right? Like, Frank opens the box in the attic of the Ludovico house that he and Larry or in the novella, Rory, own from their grandparents. And, you know, one of the things we talked about when we talked about that first film on the Corpse Club podcast is the weirdness in which Barker had to negotiate the North American versus UK remake. So it's like, obviously (laughs) a British house, but it's set questionably in North America. Yeah, it's almost like that Simpsons kind of portal of Mm -hmm. like, Springfield is just a a place where you don't really exactly know where it is. It's very similar with this. They purposefully kind of confuse the issue with that because, you know, it's clearly a lot of British people making this movie with the Mm -hmm. exception of Andrew Robinson as as Larry and, and, uh, of course, Ashley Lawrence as as Kirstie. But they don't really want you to know, even though clearly, like, Mm -hmm. you know, the exterior shots, like they're they're in England. Yeah, the doorknobs alone tell us that you're in England. Yeah, yeah. And that also kind of contributes to the uh, to the weird experience of, of watching, uh, what is it, Andrew Chapman? Is that the guy who played Frank? Yes. I, I feel so bad for that guy oh, who like has to watch himself in this classic movie with someone else's voice yeah. coming out of him. Oh, the dubbing. Because <laughs> uh, they, they dubbed it with, with an American voice. And I've talked about my, my issues with Frank as a character. Uh, and the fact that he just kind of comes off as like a 50s greaser, like mm-hmm. sleaze bag in, in Hellraiser. Part of that is because I think they they probably took out a lot of Chapman's personality yes. by injecting a different voice over it. Yeah. But yeah, so hopefully, you know, they're not making those kind of weird decisions when it comes to the the new version. Like people can watch a movie with British people in it or, you know, they, they might just decide to, to set it in America. Who knows? Oh, I 100% think that they're going to be setting this in the US for sure. But it's interesting that we're talking about Frank. Obviously, we're sort of doing this a bit sequentially in terms of like changes as the book progresses. But Mm -hmm. I often forget that the book opens with a really extended passage, all from Frank's perspective as he opens the box. Like, obviously, the film has that, but it's brief. Mm -hmm. You know, like we are we are trying to get through this so that we can get into the meat and potatoes of the film. Whereas in the book, it's almost a languid opening with a character who will not come back into play for a substantial amount of time, Mm -hmm. but it's so important for setting the tone and the experience. Like there is so much sensory experiential writing that happens in this opening section which is fascinating and i again don't know how you would be able to capture some of this on film which is why i think barker makes a more expedient creative decision in the film but reading specifically just this opening chapter 
it's so lush. Like mm. I really understood what Frank was going through because of Barker's writing. Yeah. It makes it about more than hooks and chains. Yes. You know, it yes. is a lot of the kind of the harrowing part of the, that opening scene is that they kind of unleash this torrent of hypersensitivity. Mm-hmm. So he's feeling all these, this sensory overload, but every little bit of it, he feels to such an acute level that he just can't handle it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that there's probably a couple different reasons why you don't see that in Hellraiser. Uh, you know, I think budget is, you know, how the hell oh, sure. was, was Barker ever going to, you know, do anything that comes close to representing that with what the million dollars total that mm-hmm. he had to make that movie. And, you know, I, I think it's kind of where you start to shy away from, you know, this isn't as much a sensual movie as it is. It's a little bit more straightforward horror by the time it gets mm-hmm. from Hellbound Heart to to Hellraiser. Yeah. You know, so I think for me, this opening scene is an opportunity to explore the sexuality and the sensuality mm-hmm. of, of this story a little bit more. If if they can find a good way to to convey that on screen. Yes, absolutely. And you've cued us to our next kind of key distinction, which is the idea of sex. So mm-hmm. one of the big things that, of course, Jamie Clayton's casting the reason that I think we're both so excited about it is that it does start to move it more into this queer direction into a kind of gender fluidity. And that's Mm -hmm. really evident when you reread the Hellbound Heart, because the description of the Cenobites who are both referred to by that term, but also as theologians of the order (laughs) of the gash. And Mm -hmm. oh boy, the use of the word gash to me is so queer and such a term that a gay man would use in writing very uh uh, (laughs) a little bit of like oh i'm afraid of women (laughs) yes yeah but the cenobites are frequently described as sexless or gender fluid like you can't really tell what they are and partially it's because they're so heavily scarred from their pleasure torment escapades that Mm -hmm. they they present as almost otherworldly like they are very clearly humans who have been transformed and yet also completely divorced of anything that we would call gender and one key distinction that people often latch onto is that pinhead or the one with the pins in their head is not the leader and is also coded as you said as feminine because they have a very high-pitched girl voice mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and i think the Cenobites as depicted in the Hellbound Heart. And, you know, I think there's a degree to it that does carry over into Hellraiser. But this is where I think the queer coding and the queer mm-hmm. exploration, this is where you can really kind of dig into that. Yes. Because, you know, you realize that kind of their their appetites are uh, indiscriminatory. Right. Uh, whoever opens that box, mm-hmm. they're going to be game for having some shenanigans with that person the the person might might be ready with what those shenanigans are but yeah i I think it's a a very important point that yeah the the cenobites are i think gender fluid is a good way to to approach them and they are i think pansexual is a good Mm -hmm. way to to describe them and as someone who 
kind of within the last, I would say, year or two, has kind of identified himself as pansexual. This is an interesting area for, for me to be in and an interesting area to hopefully explore in a remake because I think mm -hmm. I use the word evolution a lot when it comes to my relationship with this movie hmm. and with this story. And I think that part of why it, it has connected with me for so long is because I find new things to love about it every few years. Yes. And so, you know, at first it was just the way the Cenobites looked mm -hmm. and then it was finding the, the elements in that kind of core story between the cottons and realizing that that family melodrama is so interesting and yes. what really pushes the narrative. Mm -hmm. And now more recently it's, you know, there are queer elements in it mm -hmm. and that that's something that I'm experiencing from a different lens, as opposed to someone who's kind of looking at it from the outside and, and, you know, saying like, Oh, queer elements. That's interesting. Yeah. Now kind of interacting with that on a more personal level uh, has, has made that something that obviously has, has piqued my interest in a different way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the novella is, interested and also not in exploring that like really we yeah. get the best taste of it in this opening chapter and it's presented and then just kind of left and how much you want to take up with it is really up to you as a reader what's interesting to me is seeing how that then gets transformed in that first film where it becomes less about as you suggested the gender fluidity or the pansexuality even the the sexuality proper like they talk about playing games with characters and there's an insinuation of pleasure gone wrong in frank's description of it but at the end of the day the film i think has to settle into a still transgressive but less transgressive than we would like status because it becomes more about kink and bondage and and I think it makes sense for 1987. I think it makes sense for the world that Clive Barker was living in and what he wanted to capture. And I can't imagine how confronting this is to vanilla audiences at the time, right? Like this is transformative for mm -hmm. a lot of people. But I think in 2022, we are going to be looking for something different and, mm -hmm. and maybe just updated. But I'll be very curious to see how this ends up playing out on screen and how much time and attention we want to spend on who these characters are in terms of not just their look, but the way that they approach this pleasure pain principle. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, a, a couple of things out of that is that, you know, when I talk about the exploration of pansexuality, I'm not looking at it in terms of like, I don't want this to be a story about someone discovering their pansexuality. No, no. What makes them so interesting is that they just are, and they're yeah. already so comfortable with it. And mm -hmm. it's not even like, it's a non-issue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, you know, we, we are what we are. Yes. Uh, the, the, the pansexuality <laughs> of it is like, the least of your troubles at this juncture yes. <laughs> if you're if you're meeting these Cenobites. <laughs> but I think what's also going to be interesting is to what degree they allow for the idea that, you know, and I think we talked about this a little bit in the, the Corpse Club review or the, the retrospective where I made a point that I think there are some people who open that box and get exactly what they get is exactly what they were looking for, mm -hmm. you know, and I hope there's some element to that in this right. i'm hoping but not necessarily expecting because i don't know to what degree that's all headcanon for me mm -hmm. 
because it's it's never depicted either in the book or the movie as like something that's been a good find for anybody who has opened no. Lamarchand's Le, box. But I like to think that you know, with these Cenobites being who they are, that at some point, um, this isn't a trap necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's just no. that most of the people who open it don't know what they're getting into. Yeah, and and honestly, rereading this maybe my favorite realization of all was just how basic bitch Frank is where he, (laughs) he laments the fact that when they show up, they don't have a harem of willing women who, you know, have legs spread and orifices ready. And you're just thinking, Frank, that's literally why you open this because you have done that shit before. Mm -hmm. Like what the Cenobites bring you is beyond comprehension. It is completely new ways of thinking and feeling and i 100 percent agree with you i do think it'd be really exciting and interesting to explore this as maybe not a bad thing because especially mm-hmm. when you see the cenobites they are horrific but that wears off to the point of fascination and i think as horror fans we are rightly driven by that visual aesthetic like the creature design the practical makeup effects They look fantastic. The costuming is immaculate. And I would love to see... I I, I don't know. And I think this is probably beyond the scope of what you could do in a narrative form. And maybe that's why we have a shutter behind the scenes, you know, like, (laughs) Hellraiser, go watch that. But there's something to be said for how the creatures have settled into their new status quo and really embraced it like they don't look like they're in pain they don't look like they're not enjoying what they're doing when we see Mm -hmm. them when we see the way that they talk and entice people like it's a faustian bargain that they're doing but it's also not like hey we're just going to kill you it's we have such sights to show you yeah these are phrases that i think come across as just like fucked up mind games in hellraiser Mm -hmm. but i think if you take them from an angle of like they are saying all of this completely sincerely yeah this is this is what they do they're here Mm -hmm. to do this to you it's not about you've been bad and we're gonna punish you and it's you know something to also consider that like if if you're watching this or you're reading these descriptions and thinking like well well who the hell would possibly like enjoy Enjoy (laughs) then it's it's also important to remember like they didn't pull this out of nowhere like Mm -hmm. even the aesthetic Oh, it's grounded in reality. Yeah, I, I was watching the Behind the Monsters series on Shudder, uh, the one that they did on Pinhead, and they talked a little bit about how the visual inspiration for designing these creatures, uh, Clive Barker said to his uh, to his makeup team, go back and look at Piercing Fans International Quarterly, which was mm-hmm. a magazine that was out uh, from the 70s to the 90s. And it's you know, was about people who were into various types of body modification, you know, piercings and and things that, you know, go beyond what people would normally think about when they think about like just pierced ears or even noses. There's Mm -hmm. a lot more intricate shit where people are weaving, you know, metal and fabric through their skin and, and doing things that would, you know, pretty closely mirror, you know, maybe not to the level of what you see in the Cenobites, but definitely in the same ballpark. Yeah. You know, the, kind of fantastical level isn't taken to as far of a degree as you might think mm-hmm. yeah and i think sort of problematically because movies and to a lesser extent books are being marketed to a mass audience there's 
a tendency to lean into the, oh, this is so othered, isn't it Mm -hmm. scary? Because Mm -hmm. we have to make it as palatable to a wide audience. And frankly, I'm going to say it again, a vanilla audience. So, (laughs) you know, I'm thinking we see depictions of body modification in movies like American Mary, the serial killer played by Vincent D'Onofrio in The Cell. Like there's... Mm always these insinuations that if you're into this there's something wrong with you or that you're weird or that you're evil and i think it's a problem that i would like to see new iterations particularly of hellraiser begin to address because i do think there's more interesting more contemporary takes on why this isn't always a bad thing Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i'll be interested to see if and how they're able to because it's also, again, like this is all stuff that you and I and, and you know various fans have kind of taken the ball and run with in terms mm-hmm. of how we've thought about it. It's not necessarily all that front and center in the text no. itself. No. So it's, you know, how how can you maybe explore that while still kind of staying true to the to the core story mm-hmm. is an interesting line to, to walk. Yeah. So coming back to this main story, the sort of biggest, most significant change that Barker makes from novella to film is in Kersey's relationship to the Larry Rory character. So we alluded to it that she is a friend who has a sexual interest in him in the novella compared to being his adult daughter in the movie. I'm curious, does this make a big deal to you? Do you like one better than the other? I could see it one way or the other and, and, and get something out of it. And, you know, I, I did, I think the way everything was framed in the original Hellraiser, I think it made more sense for the father daughter relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think it works really well there. I do think this is probably the biggest opportunity to take things and explore different themes by returning to that original relationship with, huh. with Rory, you know, it, you know, maybe go back to him being Rory or Larry. Who cares? <laughs> right having it be her crush could be interesting as long as they don't make him so damn milk toast as he is right. in both the novella and in the movie, because it's like, there's that question of like, why, you know, right. <laughs> like, why are you this invested in someone who is just mm-hmm. like a walking mannequin? Like there's just, <laughs> there's a, not a lot to And I think, you know, at the same time, I understand that's kind of part of the, yeah, it's maybe story. by design, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's tough because I do agree with you. It's so difficult to understand maybe why Kirsty has these kinds of feelings for Rory in the novella. But it's also because we don't know anything about Rory, right? Like we don't really get much in the way of his like, who is this man? Mm-hmm. Uh, what does he want? What does he need? And I think in part, it's because Barker is the least interested in him, <laughs> right? You've got fascinating characters like Julia and Frank to occupy your time. Like, why are we going to dedicate valuable space to a character who is Milkatos? But it becomes difficult from Kirsty's perspective in the novella to say, why is she so excited by him? Mm-hmm. Whereas it makes perfect sense as to why Julia is not interested in him and would be rather spending her time with Frank. Which is even also interesting too, because I think the novella goes to pretty great lengths to explain that Julia's really not even that into Frank as much as she's in the Mm -hmm. idea. She's into the idea of 
some kind of a sexual awakening, something she's yes, not getting yes. from, from Rory, mm-hmm. you know, and Frank gives her to a certain degree, even while they acknowledge, like, he's also just kind of shitty and he's not oh, all God, that yeah. great, but it's no. just, he represents the idea of, of something more. Yes. And one of the things that I really took away from the book this time is it made me uncomfortable, but the implications to which the sexual encounter, it's again, one time shortly before the wedding, mm-hmm. But in the book, it's so much more graphically described as rape. Yeah. Like, it's really rapey. Mm-hmm. And it made me uncomfortable because I think I wanted it to either be more unpacked or I wanted it gone in that mm-hmm. way. Because, yeah, there, there's something very confronting about rape, quite obviously. Mm-hmm. But the recurring gag whenever people talk about Hellraiser and specifically Julia is like, girl, there's other dick in the world. Like <laughs> you don't have to go to such extreme lengths. What does Frank have? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we can make those jokes. We've made those jokes, you and I, but at the end of the day, it's more interesting to look at Julia as, yeah, like this sexually starved woman who it's not even that she dislikes Rory, at least initially. Like, there's a reason she married him. There's a reason that she stayed with him. But what she is ultimately looking for, and she doesn't even realize it until Frank returns into her life, is, shit, I am an unsatisfied woman. Mm-hmm. And considering that this is a book that's all about transgressing your sexual boundaries, again, it's a perfect fit. It's why I think Julia is the most fascinating character. Certainly, definitely. And it's navigating those relationships in a remake and is going to be something where, again, it's going to be tricky because I also don't want to, you know, explore Larry slash Rory and Frank in a way that it takes away from the fact that this is Kirstie and Julia's story. Yes. You know, and so, you know, it, it's such a, a, a tricky kind of minefield that Bruckner is going to be walking through. And it's also mm-hmm. one that I'm, I'm going to try and not, you know, now that I'm excited for it, I also need to remind myself that, you know, we're talking about these things that would be interesting to be included, but I mm-hmm. also am trying not to turn those things into expectations about what I need to see from a health. Oh, absolutely. Reading. Yeah. You know, this is all just, you know, it's, again, we like talking about this world. It gives mm-hmm. us an opportunity to do that. These are some things yes. we'd like to see. But I'm saying this out loud because I'm also trying to make sure I'm convincing myself of it. Like, these are not <laughs> expectations I have of this movie. No. You know, he might find completely different ways to make this story interesting. Absolutely. Yeah, we're not walking into this with a checklist of expectations and saying, (laughs) if he doesn't deliver on eight of the ten of these, this is going to be a failure. It's just, these are all interesting opportunities that we're hoping are going to be considered. But at the end of the day, I want to see whatever Bruckner has decided is the most interesting take on this. And the fact that we've got Clive Barker as an executive producer on this gives me the hope that some of these more transgressive, you know, boundary pushing elements will still be included because I think that's your and my concern about the David Gordon Green version is like, that could be literally the Larry Rory version of how to tell this story, right? <laughs> yeah. It could be boring and milquetoast. I need transgressive queer sexuality in here. And I'm putting like a divisions between each of those words, but I would love to see all three. Yeah, I think, as we've been saying, we're a lot more likely to see that 
out of this remake than out of the series, which is why I think you're not hearing a lot about the the series right now. Mm-hmm. A partially because I don't think either one of us are nearly as excited about it as the uh, the, yes. the remake, but also <laughs> I think the areas where the series could be exciting, I think more connects with what we're going to talk about with the comic books and even I think with the Scarlet right. Gospels. Yeah. So you'll you'll hear more about kind of I think where I'm potentially interested in where the series might go, mm-hmm. uh, the, the HBO series once we get to these these next two sections. Indeed, yes. Okay, so let's talk about the end of the novella and how Mm -hmm. that differs, because that is sort of the other big area where there are changes made in the film. Mm -hmm. And the first of these is that the Cenobites don't renege on their pledge to Kirsty. So when they make the deal that they are there to collect Frank, they leave her alone. And it's Mm -hmm. up to her to escape the house at that point, compared to the film where, of course, they are cheeky villains (laughs) who say like, oh, well, we said we were going to let you go, but we've actually kind of changed our mind because we could have both you and Frank. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is where the opportunity really comes up to explore that idea of them not as monsters or villains, but just Mm -hmm. as like they are what they are. You know, right. and not to have that last minute pivot towards, you know, it makes for a great finale, you know, in, in the movie yeah. where she kind of blasts the ball back into the box. But I'm more interested to see, like, you know, we we had a deal, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to stick to it again. We're not we're not monsters. We are just these beings that a lot of people can't even begin to comprehend, you know. Mm-hmm. So when, you know, a lot of people, when they open it up, what they get is something that they <laughs> they experience as monstrous. Right. But in fact, we're not monsters. And so, you mm-hmm. know, have a great life. We're, we're going back to, <laughs> you know, we're going back to whatever corner of the uh, the universe that, that we exist in or, or some parallel universe. And we're going to go kind of do our thing and you do yours. Indeed. And I'm sorry, I'm laughing because as you were speaking, I was thinking, oh, God, are we advocating for a Fifty Shades of Grey S? Like, oh, we want to see some really sexy contract signing between <laughs> Kirsty and the Cinefights. Oh, no, no, folks, that is not what we're advocating for. But yeah, one of the interesting things that you and I talked about both on the Corpse Club, and I think I believe it's part of the Scarlet Gospels, is this idea that there are rules abiding by the way that the Cenobites conduct business and into the larger realm from which they originate. Or mm-hmm. we haven't really had an opportunity to explore the Leviathan as much as it gets depicted in the second film. But yeah, there, there's every indication that there is a structure and a certain level of like lines that can and maybe shouldn't but sometimes are crossed and i think that there are weird and interesting opportunities to play with that but particularly in the novella what you signed up for is what you get and they don't go beyond that Mm -hmm. and i also think there's something interesting about the fact that although hell is in the title of the novella and the mm-hmm. title of the movie. I don't interpret where these, where the no. Cenobites come from as capital Mm-mm. H hell, like at all. No. You know, it, it's interesting because they talk about, you know, one of the original working titles for the movie was sadomasochist from beyond the grave. <laughs> I can see why they did not go with that title, but I think it's more Harder to sell. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's more truthful to where these, to where the Cenobites come from and kind of what they're about. Yeah. You know, they're not from this punitive hell mm-hmm. that I think starts to spring up as early as Hellbound, uh, yeah. the Hellraiser 2, where, you know, they, they talk about how Larry is in his own hell. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you see Frank, he's he's enduring this this kind of poetic 
justice form of punishment where he's yeah. you know offered these you know sensual delights but it's all just a tease mm-hmm. you know th- that's kind of where the universe was built in subsequent films but oh yes for me the the origin of the cenobites isn't anything to do with like a judeo-christian hell yeah especially not in this first text Mm -hmm. yeah yeah you know i think the word hell is used because it serves as something of a shorthand to let the audience know like this is the kind of shit you're getting into Mm -hmm. yeah and and of course we can't divorce the fact that this is horror right Mm -hmm. so we we're looking to scare people and what scares them is this idea of punishment and pain so absolutely it does make sense but again i mean like one of the defining principles of hellraiser to me at least and i think you as well i'm speaking for you (laughs) is this idea that there is a thin line between one person's pain and another person's pleasure Mm -hmm. and somebody's definition of hell could be somebody else's definition of heaven and yeah that's so judeo-christian blah (laughs) like the series doesn't go there until way later and again it's because i think it's a fundamental misreading of what the groundwork is that's being laid out in this first novel mm-hmm. and film. Yep. Agreed. Okay. So speaking of the rules, one of the enigmatic figures in the novella is this character of the engineer. So when Frank opens the box in the first chapter, there's four Cenobites, but he was told that there are five and he has promised that if he delivers or if he signs up for this he will meet the engineer and then in the end of the book when Kirsty is making her escape she's trying to get out of the house and julia's corpse calls to her and there is this really nightmarish imagery of julia cradling her own head in her lap and the engineer has taken over the body and it's described as like having a kind of light where the head should be and i think it's really fascinating it doesn't come into play in the film as much i know some people have described the creature that kirsty encounters in the hospital corridor as the engineer Eh. (laughs) yeah yeah i think it is the engineer but i think it's a different interpretation a very different very different yes 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 yes. to (laughs) to pivot again into that more kind of straightforward horror Uh uh-huh so yeah it's the playing with the engineer in the remake could be a very different experience rather than having it be this like big toothy thorny Mm -hmm. pnc creature yeah especially because when we consider some of that lore that begins to get explored in that 10th film judgment there is an engineer character in there and he is very much process driven he is a bit of a nightmare figure but I think he he harkens back closer to what the novella is suggesting. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm I'm interested to a certain extent in that bureaucracy, but you know, in in the novella it's basically I'm trying to lure you in, but to what end? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. And then we see him again on the street when he presses the box into Kirsty's hands and then just kind of walks away. So I don't know. Like, I have a lot of questions. Like, what is the engineer? Who is this character? And I'm excited to learn more about him slash it slash they. You know, in in in, in judgment, the engineer is is more interpreted. Yeah, the as like you said, bureaucracy. And I think Hellbound Heart. It's less like all these rules are less bureaucracy and more mm-hmm. ritual. Right. Like, this mm. is how we do this. 
Yes. Um, you know, and it's not necessarily red tape, but it's it's part of the process, and it's it's part of kind of where the the sensuality comes from is because like it's all wrapped up in itself. Mm-hmm. And so that idea of of ritual, I think, is another area where it could be interesting to to explore. Yeah, yeah, because of course the book has a lot more with ritual, like the process that Frank undergoes before calling upon the Cenobites. You know, I read a couple of deep dives into it about how it harkens back to Clyde Barker's interest in the occult, which again, I'm very excited to see how this is going to intersect with Harry Demore, because of course Harry Demore is a paranormal investigator who has experiences dealing with the occult. So mm-hmm. I'm gonna be looking for those connections and that ritual, as you said, fantastic word choice, Brian. Uh, and, and it also it will contribute to that idea of going back to the idea of if if Frank had done a little bit more digging and wasn't <laughs> such a jackass. Asshole. Yeah. Like he, he was basically just interested in how do I get it? How do I open it? Uh-huh. Like there's that sense of maybe if you had taken a little bit more time to yeah. research exactly what it was you were opening, you mm-hmm. wouldn't be in this situation in the first place. I was lied to. I was <laughs> yeah. misinformed. Like, Were well, you? fuck you, Frank. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry you didn't do your homework, dumbass. Yeah. yeah. Read the read the manual, shithead. Right. <laughs> so much, yes. <laughs> so that final element where Kirsty ends up with the box in the mm. book, I forgot how opaquely sort of the lack of closure that the novella offers because yeah the engineer presses the box into Kirstie's hands and she can see julia and frank and their their current status reflected mm-hmm. in it but she can't see rory and she says you know maybe i'll continue to look for puzzles in whatever form they may pop up for a hint of where he is at but the novella just ends like there's no closure <laughs> it's very uncertain as to what will happen next whereas in the film of course we have Kirsty with the box and then the hermit who is the person who has been like a a weird figure who sort of shows up every once in a while to present a bit of a jump scare and threaten her he transforms into a bone dinosaur grabs the box <laughs> and spirits it away so that we can return to the otherness and renew the cycle again so thoughts um we'll see more about the the transient slash skeleton pterodactyl <laughs> when we talk about how they've been interpreted in some of the comics. Okay. But I, I really like that idea of Kirsty ending up with a box at the end of the novella because it explores that area that I think is hinted at in the movie, but they go a little bit more in depth with the novella in terms of Kirsty's own kind of darker proclivities and her right. her ability to uh, you know she's able to navigate this world and there's a an element to which when she opens the box she makes this deal with the cenobites there's there's description of her walking to the house she's freaked out and she's scared but there's also the sense of like empowerment mm-hmm. where she's like she's feeling you know i've, I've kind of got this this dark force in my now. corner yeah yeah and I am going to use this to basically point this at Julia and at Frank. And there's something about it where she's just similar to Julia's kind of being open to a new world with Frank, as mm-hmm. problematic as that is. Right. This has also opened Kirsty up to kind of new possibilities. Yes. In ways that seem less problematic. 
mm-hmm. in, in, in ways that kind of give her more agency. And again, yeah. isn't erased or canceled out by the Cenobites turning on her at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fact that she then ends up with the box is, I think, you know, that's part of her now. Like this world right. is she's in this world and there's no going back and she doesn't necessarily want to go back. Mm-hmm. I think this all makes more sense when Kirsty is an adult woman who mm-hmm. has a sexual interest in how the story is unfolding. Mm-hmm. I think it doesn't make as much sense when Kirsty is the sexual ingenue mm-hmm. of the film world where it's like she's daddy's little girl and really this is her gateway into adult sexuality. Mm-hmm. But I think it makes sense, like, in both ways for the different interpretations of the character based on what Barker is trying to do. And I think there's maybe a less creep factor if you do it in the context of Kirsty being an adult who is, you know, attracted to Rory as opposed to a younger coded Kirsty who is Mm -hmm. Larry's daughter. Indeed. Yeah. It doesn't have the same impact when you say come to daddy when (laughs) she's not your daughter yes (laughs) or niece that's the case maybe okay so let's wrap up this first episode with a kind of quick fire we talked through the first iteration of this right we spent a lot of time talking about the novella and the first film so thinking about again most specifically the bruckner version what are some of the things that you would like to see um you know just kind of putting that button on the idea of like let's bring the sexy back to hellraiser (laughs) in ways that you know in some cases hellraiser didn't even bring to it right you know let's bring the sexy back to the hellbound heart i guess and see where we can explore the more sensual elements Mm -hmm. of the novella that because of you know a lot of i think factors i think particularly the time when it came out they just you know couldn't really explore and we, I think, have a better opportunity to do in you know 2022 when this comes out. Yes. And and before people start sending angry tweets, we are not suggesting that the first film was not sexy or mm-hmm. sensual. It's just that there is a different cadence to it in the novella that I think the timing could be more appropriate to explore in 2022. Yes. Yeah. And ways that, the, you know, Clive Barker himself has even said he needed to rein in because yeah. of censorship issues like you know uh-huh. the, the scene where frank and julia you know she's oh my having god a the number of thrusts fuck yeah. off yeah fuck off with that and the worst part is like i forget if it was the the censors who suggested it or if it was just the way that barker decided to go and the censors accepted it but they took it to a more implicit violent place than it was mm-hmm. you know it yes. was more just explicitly sexual and then they you know, because they couldn't have as many thrusts, they decided mm-hmm. to bring in like the knife play, you know, and that right. kind of like threat element to it. Mm-hmm. It's still made for, you know, it makes for an interesting scene, but it's it's just kind of an example of the, the ways that, that Barker clearly had to rein it in a little bit. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I think we, we spent a little bit of time talking about Kirstie and Larry's relationship and mm-hmm. I'm a little bit more on the pro father daughter side than you are, but having unpacked it with you, I can understand that there are different pros to having the relationship be one that's more sexual and not relational in that sense. The interesting thing is that, you know, in, even in the novella, it's not technically sexual because it's an unrequited love. 
Indeed. We don't even know if Rory likes her in that way. <laughs> yeah. But I think they do, like, if they're going to go that route, they need to make at least a little bit more of an effort to show, like, why that attraction uh-huh. would be there. Be it because of Rory or because of whatever internal processes are going on in, in Christie's life at that point. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see if Larry slash Rory is a character. Like, are you going to show up in this mm-hmm. new text? I will say one of the things that I think that could be really interesting, because, of course, yeah, let, let's let go woke, let's go feminist, let's go POC, you know, I'm going to be looking for different and varied representation. Mm-hmm. And I think it'd be really fascinating if Larry was Lerette, or I would love to see a queer relationship at the heart of this story. Let's do some some gender swapping on some of these roles. Yeah, I think that would absolutely. be very interesting yeah. to see. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Okay, and then finally, Cenobites. What do we think are going to happen with them? So I'm at least cautiously optimistic that Bruckner... Actually, I have no idea. You know, <laughs> Because now that I think about it, the, the, the idea that the first real news to come out of this remake is that they cast Pinhead. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as excited as I am for that to be Jamie Clayton... The fact that that's the first thing they've talked about is maybe a hint that they're acknowledging the Cenobites as being a pivotal role. And I mean, from Go, you know, in the original Hellraiser, Pinhead is on the cover. You know, you, you don't see mm-hmm. Kirsty, you don't see Frank, Larry, Julia, anybody else. It's Pinhead. So they, they know what's going to put butts in the seats. Uh, what I'm hoping is that Bruckner knows that the Cenobites are a key element to it, but they shouldn't be the majority element to it, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Right, yeah. And and let's not forget that we, we do have other cast members that we know are in this. Mm-hmm. So we know that Odessa Azion is the lead actress, but mm-hmm. at the point of recording this, we don't know who any of these other actors are actually playing. They don't have characters attached to them. So we have a tentative cast, but we don't know the context for which they're going to be engaging with Pinhead. So all we can do is speculate. But yeah, like the hope is always for me, I want to see rich character work and I want to see the Cenobites as antagonists and maybe even peripheral antagonists like i want to see that judicious use of them so that when they come in again i want maximum impact but i also kind of want limited screen time and i know that that goes against what a lot of people are probably hoping for Mm -hmm. but unless this movie is about jamie clayton's pinhead i want her to show up and do some magic and then i want her to go away so we can focus (laughs) on the humans yep Yep. And and that reminder or the, you know, stick to that idea that these are demonic or monstrous, but they're not the villains. They're, right. you know, yeah. Frank and Julia are the villains of this story. Yes. Yeah. And the other thing that I'm interested to see is in terms of the visual representation of the, the Cenobites, I would like to see a return of kind of that creativity when it comes to the creature design but also like make sure that we're avoiding that less literal interpretation of connecting some kind of superficial character point to their (laughs) to how they're scarred you know like Mm -hmm. you know i don't want another cd head i don't want another no god no you know, I don't want another Cenobite that's based off of like Terry likes to smoke or, uh, mm-hmm. 
No, no. <laughs> you know, it's that's obviously, you know, we're talking about part three where, you know, they, they took these very gimmicky approaches to to the Cenobites and it's, you know, never really been what they've been about. And it's something we've lost over 10 of these movies where the original is their personality kind of comes out in this the way this ritual scarification, but it's in a way that is just it's the same way that piercings and, and tattoos work. It, it's not supposed to be some kind of literal thing. It's, you know, how do I create or how do I express myself through this? And it was lost by making it literal in, in ones like, you know, three and four, and then lost by, I think, a lack of creativity and budget in later versions where just a lot of the luster, I think, was taken out of the, the design in the Cenobites. So I'd like to see a return to form uh, when it comes to, to, to how they're represented. Yes, absolutely. Hard, hard agree. And I really like the use of the word literal, because I do think that that's, again, one of the areas that people have kind of, uh, I'm going to use the word misinterpret <laughs> the appeal of the Cenobites. Like we want that fantastic creature design, but there's other ways to depict who and what the Cenobites are without having to reduce them to insert object or scary thing into face. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> yeah i mean i do feel like we've maybe established a very high bar of what we're looking for but again what i think you and i have spent the better part of 90 minutes talking about are just different ways that people could begin to approach this kind of material and and really that's what i love about hellraiser and barker's world is that this is such a big sandbox to play in and mm -hmm. I love the idea of speculating about who and what we could see or how it comes together. Yeah, yeah. The fact that, you know, you and I, just two people, have kind of unpacked all these various layers and, and unexplored areas of this, I think, would amount to about a 150-page novella. Right. Shows that, like, you know, we're not, I, I would say we're, I'll say it, we're experts on, on the Hellraiser <laughs> franchise, but we're not the end-all be-all when it comes no. to interpretation about what makes it interesting. So what's also exciting is that David Bruckner and team might find a whole slew of other things that make mm -hmm. it interesting. So that's really the only thing that like is a must for me is like, make it interesting. Oh, like God, if you're, yes. if you're going to revisit this material, make sure there's a reason to do it other than, mm -hmm. you know, trying to cash in on the name. And I, I am cautiously optimistic that they are doing this with the right reasons. Yeah, if anything, we've seen a tentative step forward of what this will look like because we've got the same creative team in terms of writing and direction as the Nighthouse. Mm -hmm. And if they take the material seriously in the way that we saw in the Nighthouse, but then we start to introduce this transgressiveness, this queerness, this sexual sensuousness, then... I think we could really have something special coming our way in the near future. Fingers crossed. Oh my God, please. <laughs> uh, okay, so we're going to wrap up this first episode here. We're moving into comics next, but Brian, if people want to get a hold of you to talk more about the Hellbound Heart, how would they do so? Uh, pretty much Twitter is your best bet. You can find me at Evil Taylor Hicks. Just look for the guy who's probably, you know, talking to himself in a Twitter corner about mm -hmm. Hellraiser already. Right. Yeah. So I'm not I'm not hard to find. 
Okay. Okay. Good. <laughs> or if not to himself, I'll be talking to you. So, so where right. where can we find you, Joe? Basically, yeah. If there is a gif of Julia being put onto Twitter, it was probably coming from my direction, mm-hmm. and I could be reached at B still on my remote, and that's the letter B. And quick shout out of thanks to the Anatomy of a Screen Pod Squad for hosting such sites to show you, because yes, of course, you. Uh, you know, we appreciate having the space in which to just dovetail <laughs> just the two of us off in our corner talking about <laughs> Hellraiser. Uh, always happy to have a home here on the AOAS Pod Squad. Yeah, like we were going to be doing this anyway, so it's nice to have a way for it to not just be us like, you know putting on our tinfoil hats in a corner mm-hmm. of the internet somewhere. <laughs> at, at least a couple other people can enjoy this. Indeed, yeah. It, it's not just uh, stuck in our in our Twitter DMs with each <laughs> other, right? <laughs> okay, so comics next. Brian, I'm woefully unprepared for this, so I'm going in cold. I don't really know what to expect, except that there's more than I knew in this realm, like in this medium as well. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if if anybody, you know, if you're listening to this and you want to kind of dip your toe into the Hellraiser comics world, uh, there's a lot of different iterations of that and how that kind of manifested. Uh, The first was a series of basically anthology stories. So, you know, little one shots that take Mm -hmm. place within the Hellraiser universe, kind of like think of it like Hellraiser meets Tales from the Crypt uh, or EC Comics or something like that. Delightful. I believe that was through Epic Comics. Okay. Which is, you know, uh, pretty interesting. It's a way of approaching the Hellraiser mythos from a lot of different angles. Uh, And then there was a series uh, through Boom Comics uh, that was more of a a long narrative arc that incorporated Kirsty Cotton. Uh, It incorporates Elliot Spencer, uh, both kind of pinhead Elliot Spencer and Elliot Spencer kind of as his kind of own entity. Uh, It brings in Harry Damore and it really investigates in depth kind of the the machinations of hell as seen through leviathan but also kind of representing these different hierarchies of hell and and different warring factions and it's interesting for a very different reason than the hellbound heart but also i think brings some interesting stuff to the table and a lot of really interesting visual elements to it uh so yeah you know i i think this is going to be where we see some roads that uh, the the series could take that it would be interesting and and hopefully that'll kind of be where they take their cues from fascinating and i'm i'm loving the idea of like one shots as well as a more kind of serialized format and that sounds like a great then segue into that final iteration that we're going to do on the scarlet gospels mm-hmm. yep okay so folks We want to hear from you, and we want you to read along. So get started on some of those comics and reach out with your thoughts. And with that said, then, we will wrap up this first episode of Such Sights to Show. And until next time, don't open the damn box. (laughs) Unless you know what you're getting into, then open away. Yeah, consensual box opening. Ooh, okay. That's a whole other path. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know what? I'm digging myself into a hole. We'll just leave it at that.
Scream Pod Squad.